1: helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E
2: British Airways breach got bigger. Mexico's financial institutions say they've contained anomalies in interbank transfer systems. DemonBot is infesting poorly secured Hadoop servers. Google receives criticism for slow action against ad fraud. Bitdefender and Romanian police produce a decryptor for Gancrab ransomware. Discussions of a civilian cybersecurity corps. Are White Hats the radio hams of the 21st century? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, with your CyberWire summary for Friday, October 26, 2018, I'm Peter Kilpie, executive editor, sitting in for Dave Bittner, who's probably wishing about now his vacation was just a little longer. He'll be back in your earbuds on Monday. The British Airways breach seems to have gotten a little bigger. The airline has disclosed that 185,000 additional customers were also affected and that credit card information was among the data exposed. Insurer AXA said yesterday that its customers' information and resources were unaffected by the cyber attack it discovered on October 22nd. AXA noticed anomalies in its transactions carried by the Interbank Payment System, SPEI, and notified Mexico's Central Bank, which placed the country's financial sector on heightened alert. New Sky Security and Radware are warning of a botnet that's been quietly establishing itself in poorly secured Apache Hadoop servers. The intention appears to be to use the compromised servers for distributed denial-of-service attacks. Radware calls the infestation demon bot, was first noticed in New Sky Honeypots late this summer. Researchers for now think that the botnet is the work of skids, but it's yet another annoyance to deal with. In the U.S., Senator Warner, Democrat of Virginia, has asked the Federal Trade Commission to look into what it characterizes as Google's inaction against ad fraud. His letter was prompted by a report in BuzzFeed that Google had been sitting on its hands with respect to ad fraud for some time. The article also prompted Google to move against the particular kind of ad fraud BuzzFeed had described. Google hadn't been as utterly inattentive as one might conclude from the senator's letter. Mountain View had, as Security Week points out, previously blocked websites from its ad network when they violated Google's policies. What's new is that Google has now moved against applications involved in the fraud. The action seems late to Senator Warner. His letter decries, quote, inattention to misconduct within the App Store, unquote. He also complains that Google did not see fit to conduct a more thorough investigation of ad fraud when researchers brought the matter to its attention in June. The senator calls it, quote, willful blindness. After the break, we'll hear Dave's recent conversation with Daniel Prince from Lancaster University, who shares his thoughts on quantum hardware primitives.
1: so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Daniel Prince. He's a senior lecturer in cybersecurity at Lancaster University. Daniel, welcome back. we wanted to talk about quantum hardware security primitives today. And I have to admit, uh, you sent that topic over. I'm intrigued. What, uh, what are we going to cover today?
0: So, this is based on some uh, work that I'm doing with a, a spin out company from Lancaster University uh, called QuantumBase, and uh, some of the work that uh, some of our physicists are doing over in um, our physics department. Uh, and instead of trying to bite off the whole quantum problem, building a quantum computer or doing complete quantum key distribution. Uh, The approach that we've started to adopt here is to actually think about how can we use quantum effects to um, really provide some of the primitive functions within traditional cryptographic solutions. And so uh, some of the the things that we're looking at here are things like random number generation and uh, unique identifiers, which because of their quantum uh, and their physical properties means that they are impossible to replicate or, or clone. But because they're operating at a very small scale enables us to embed quantum like effects into uh, our standard integrated circuits um, the beauty of that mean is that what we can do now is start to increase the security capabilities of some of the, the standard the cryptographic processes that we have so if you take for example the quantum a uh, random number generator, instead of using a pseudo-random number generator in terms of the cryptographic processes, we, we now have a source of true random number generation. Now, some of these elements have been around for a very long time. So we've had quantum random number generation, particularly using optical processes, but they require a lot of technology and are often quite large. A number of the, the systems that are, are currently available, uh, a full line card or a full card for, for a PC... And some of them are even dedicated pieces of equipment. Uh, what we're trying to do is get them down to very, very small scales, so they can be these these capabilities can be embedded into uh, chipsets. What's interesting is when you start to move to have quantum elements within standard cryptography, you improve the overall quality of uh, the cryptographic approaches that you have, and that improves the security for everybody without having to have the wholesale leap to you know, a complete quantum computer or complete quantum key distribution. And so it's that intermediate step before we go straight into having uh, uh, quantum cryptographic solutions uh, for everybody.
1: Daniel Prince, thanks for joining us.
2: GAN Crab ransomware has been making a pest of itself for some time. But now, thanks to some cooperation between Bitdefender and the Romanian police, the No More Ransom project has released an improved free decryption tool for this malware strain. It's an update to the earlier decryptor. This edition works against GAN Crab version 1 with the GDCB extension, version 4 with the Crab extension, and version 5 with its random 10 character extension, the latest model of GAN Crab on the street. They're still working on a decryptor that will unlock data affected by GAN Crab versions 2 and 3, but we agree with Europol that this is nice work, so bravo Bitdefender and their colleagues in the Romanian police. That sort of cooperation makes one think of some other ways in which private persons and businesses can contribute to such matters of public good. We note that many, probably most, do so already, and Bitdefender's release of the decryptor is by no means unusual in the industry. But some are considering ways in which this kind of action can be taken further. The New America Foundation, for example, has published a study calling for the formation of a civilian cyber corps. The volunteer body would, the study says, help redress shortfalls of cybersecurity labor. It's to the author's credit that they don't simply do some lazy hand-waving in the general direction of the National Guard. As they put it, quote, the organization would be modeled after a blend of cybersecurity organizations in other nations and proven models in other domains of security and safety inside the United States, specifically the Civil Air Patrol, Coast Guard Auxiliary, or volunteer firefighters. The goal would be to better involve and mobilize the wider community in tackling core needs that are unlikely to be met through existing structures, unquote. It would function as an auxiliary of the Department of Homeland Security, and the organization would work mainly in three areas. One, education and outreach. Two, testing, assessments, and exercises. And three, on-call expertise and emergency response. We stress, of course, that this is one think tank's proposal and not an existing or planned government program. But it's worth considering, since we hear similar ideas floated in various conferences and policy symposia. We might suggest a few thoughts of our own on the matter. First, it's good to see the study's authors focusing on specific areas, as opposed to offering the sweeping rhapsodies about whole of nation engagement one so often hears. Second, it's worth noting that there's a regular market for all the kinds of services the authors list. There isn't a comparable market for search and rescue or firefighting, and it would not be a trivial matter to structure a volunteer corps in ways that don't compete or displace that market. The study does point out, sensibly, that bug bounty programs amount in part to a mobilization of hobbyists. They don't overstate this. It's clear that the participation in bug bounties is also a kind of job, either in the gig economy or even for some businesses. But there are enough white hats who do this as a side hustle to make the point worth considering. Bug bounties do pay successful hunters. Regular trade does provide essential services. Food, for example, is sold by groceries and supermarkets, and it's an important and legitimate business. There are community food banks that seek out to provide for those who can't, for one reason or another, participate in that market. Could a civilian cybersecurity corps take some lessons from food banks? Or would its activities map narrowly to what Washington calls inherent government responsibilities? That is, the kinds of things you don't leave to the market, like the Army's ground combat functions or the court's role in trying criminals. Third, they suggest education and inspections as possible activities for their proposed corps. The model here would be the Coast Guard Auxiliary with its safety inspections and boating safety classes. They'll help you see that you've got a problem with your boat, but they're not going to fix it. That's a job for the boatyard. And the training they offer is solid, but at the enthusiast level. They have no intention of putting the maritime academies out of business. Fourth, it's with respect to the kinds of emergency response that the study seems on its strongest ground. The study's authors take the Civil Air Patrol as the principal model here although volunteer fire departments and the Coast Guard Auxiliary offer some analogies as well. We'd like to offer, in our own volunteer spirit, a possibly instructive analogy we haven't encountered elsewhere, AM radio. Amateur radio has long had a good reputation for providing emergency communications into areas hard hit by natural disasters. This is less true today than it was in the glory days of ham radio, the 50s and 60s, largely because of improved resilience in telecommunications and emergency service networks but there may be lessons there as well. The American Ham Radio Relay League would be the place to start. You can find them at aarl.org. They've been around for a little over 100 years, and the cyber sector may be able to learn a thing or two from them about volunteering in the public spirit. Brittany Homertsheim is the Director of Information Security at AMC Theaters. When we come back, we'll have her conversation with Dave on building partnerships within your organization to strengthen security's role.
1: Visit Vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's Vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Brittany Hammerstein. She's director of information security at AMC Theaters, the largest movie theater chain in the world, with over 10,000 screens in nearly 1,000 theaters worldwide. She's responsible for the development and implementation of AMC's global security strategy. She oversees all security personnel and ensures security concerns are addressed at the executive level.
3: So when you think of a theater, you don't really think about all the different interactions and different types of networks that you have, as well as the data that you have to protect. So if you think of a store, a theater is similar to that. So we have transactions and merchandise that happen. We have third parties that are actually streaming the feeds to the actual cinema. And then a big chunk of our focus goes on our loyalty program. So anyone that signs up using one of our loyalty programs, um, we have a duty to them to protect their data that they provide us as well.
1: And so how do you protect each of those systems individually? And is there, I mean, is there crosstalk between them? What's your approach to that?
3: All of our environments are are fairly well segmented. Um, Some of those are proprietary feeds, so like IMAX, those types of things. Um, We generally keep separate. Of course, our PCI environment, we keep separate. Our corporate network is a little bit different than um, what hits our website. So everything kind of, we try to segment it as much as possible.
1: So today, one of the things we want to touch on is this notion of uh, educating your board and getting your security projects funded. So what is your approach to this? What is the interaction you have with your board?
3: I generally talk to them. We have our board meetings every quarter. So it is my responsibility to kind of give them the threat landscape at what we're looking at, some of the projects that we have going on, and where to take it next.
1: And, And has the board been open to your message?
3: So when I originally started here, and I think this is a a good place for everyone to start, generally boards and executives only come into contact with security via media feeds. Hmm. So anything that they see on TV or they hear about on the radio, they're generally interested in that. Security is relatively new. So being able to change that into a business approach and explain those things in a way that they understand can be very difficult. But you have to know that you're going to be asked about those things. um, So you have to be prepared and be able to relate that to your business. Now, in terms
1: of getting things funded, what's your approach there?
3: So first, you need to understand your executives. So what motivates them? Is it just fear, um, not being that headline company? Is it more compliance-related, so maybe audit findings or the penalties that come along with those? Are they more interested in reputational brand damage that may hurt their stock prices? Are they looking to get some financial gain out of having these security capabilities? Um, So first, you need to understand what your executive team wants, what motivates them to invest in security. A lot of times you'll be asked to compare to other industries. So this is kind of a, a something that you want to be cautious about. So whenever you're talking about your industry vertical and they start looking at these other companies, you have to start thinking about what is the size of the company that you're comparing yourself to? Um, are they the like industry? Are they feeding and protecting the same type of data? And then most importantly, Is their program successful? A lot of times we see all these metrics and these dollars behind businesses of this industry, of this size, that are spending X percent of their IT budget or X percent of their annual budget on security. But how effective is that? So you have to be a little bit cautious when you start comparing companies in like verticals.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. Um, How do you handle pushback from the board?
3: It depends. I don't, I guess, is the answer. (laughs) Um, I I really take the approach that my job is to educate the board. So if I can effectively communicate the risk, um, I have to be okay with them taking the business approach and saying, That's not in the cards for this year. Or there's another project that's going to need to be funded over this and them accepting that risk. So I don't necessarily push back. But if I fail to educate my board so they can make educated decisions, that's certainly on me. I guess my first step in this strategy is um, starting to create a, a security committee. And this security committee is comprised of various business leaders. So you want to have anyone from marketing, HR, um, certainly IT, but a representative from each part of your business be a part of this security committee. And you need to understand what's important to them. So how is the business making money? First of all, and those are the first things that you need to think about defending. But before you can start to put those processes in place, you should start creating these partnerships. Understanding your executives, understanding your board members. Sometimes this means lunches or coffees or walking and knocking on someone's door. Hmm. Um, it takes a lot of time to do this, but what you gain in this, you start to understand your your business partners' objectives. So. If I'm talking with HR, I need to understand why they need to click on that attachment, right? It's probably a resume that their job is to open up the resume. Um, And you have to think about how your security projects are going to start to impact and affect the way that they do their day-to-day business. Is this going to be something that's going to help them? Is this going to be something that hinders them? Because if it's going to be something that hinders them, they're probably going to figure out a way to work around it. I like to think that everybody really wants to do their job, and maybe that's me putting on my my rainbow glasses, but (laughs) (laughs) I feel like people want to do a good job, and so they're going to figure out a way to make – the business more effective, make their department more effective and streamline processes. So you have to figure out a way that you can integrate your security projects that actually improves their job functions. So one of the things that I like to do is when I sit down and I'm creating these partnerships is is ask them, if there was one thing that would make your job easier, what would that be?
0: Hmm.
3: Sometimes you get information sharing. Sometimes it's being able to have this type of tool. Well, that's good for me to know because then I can go back and I may see a bunch of people across the business. Security is kind of unique in that it crosses multiple departments. Mm -hmm. So you can start seeing consistencies in the actual business and provide a tool that may actually help the business. And once you're able to do that, you create that partnership, then you start generating these business champions. And so these are the people that you've actually helped along the way. These are the people that are going to start feeding your security message for you. And once you start to get these people on your, your security committee, these business leaders that you've made changes and improvements in their department, you start to really get the ball rolling, right? Mm-hmm. People are starting to buy into this idea of security that it's no longer a hindrance. This is a security department, a security team that can really provide some value to the company.
1: That's Brittany Hommerzheim from AMC Theaters. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at the Cyberwire.com. Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
0: Hey, all Rick here. to share your feedback now.
1: And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI,